There's so much quite understandable doom and gloom about Ukraine at the moment, as the tanks muster and maybe even today will be rolling, that just to try and counter that, let me think, what might a potential peace deal look like? I'm Mark Galliotti, and welcome to my view of Russia in Moscow's shadows. This podcast, of varying length, frequency and format, yet always reassuringly low production values, is supported by generous and perspicacious patrons, who also receive extra perks and bonuses appropriate to their tier. If you'd like to join them, just head on to patreon.com slash inmoscowshadows. But now, on with today's programme. It is genuinely hard to retain any kind of optimism about what's happening in Ukraine. The Russians seem hell-bent on building some kind of, even if tissue-thin, excuse for some kind of military escalation. Though, again, given that it is very much focusing on the Donbass, we shouldn't exclude the possibility that instead of this apocalyptic, full-on invasion, that it might actually be some kind of recognition of the pseudo-states, introduction of Russian peacekeepers, and if they did want to expand, maybe pushing back to create some kind of security cordon, quote-unquote, around the region. But we'll have to see. But of course, obviously, you know, again, understandably, for the moment, the, the media and the punditocracy are very much focusing on all the potential and very, very serious implications of any kind of escalation. So much so that uh, I have to say, at times, I'm a, a little bit disquietened by the extraordinarily sort of detailed to the point of not just loving but downright pornographic assessments of how things could possibly go. So nonetheless, here we go. Here we are in a position in which certainly as of this morning, and then I'm recording this at about half past eight on the morning of Sunday the 20th of February, as of this morning, it's very difficult not to succumb to the assumption that Things are going to go badly at some point. As I said, this could be the most exquisitely detailed, intimidatory drama ever yet. Um, there's still room for diplomacy. President Macron is meant to be talking to Putin this afternoon. But we'll have to see. But anyway, as I said, for me, I thought what might be more interesting and more useful is just to brainstorm what some kind of a political deal that could possibly create resolution without sacrificing Ukrainian sovereignty and the whole global order, shall we say, and its fundamental precepts about the sovereignty of nations and so forth. What might such a deal look like? So first of all, on the question of NATO membership. Now, I mean, on the one hand, this is, frankly, in many ways, a thoroughly artificial problem, because I'm not convinced that NATO ever seriously planned to allow Ukraine or indeed Georgia to join. When they made their statement that they would become members, it's in the context of actually denying these countries membership action plans. And I think it was more a a political statement, an attempt to sweeten a bitter pill. But nonetheless, there it is. It's read into the record. Realistically, though, membership is unlikely, very, very unlikely for a long time to come. And in any case, I'm not actually entirely convinced that membership as such is Putin's particular concern or cause celebre. When he talks about it, after all, he is much more concerned about 
NATO forces in Ukraine, which, let's be honest, you don't actually have to be a NATO member to have NATO forces on your soil. So I wonder if, in fact, actually, you know, one approach would be to precisely give some kind of a deal. And obviously, you know, he doesn't believe that Western verbal assurances are worth anything at all. So this would actually have to be in some kind of treaty or other document. But something that basically said that unless there was some significant challenge to Ukrainian territorial sovereignty, there would, whether or not Ukraine is a member of NATO, not be any substantial or permanent transfer of forces, of uh, foreign forces, onto Ukrainian territory. Yes, I mean, you know, visiting ships at uh, Dessa, training missions, that kind of thing. But, but nothing that actually represented the sort of opportunity for Ukraine to become, in effect, kind of advanced base of NATO, which does seem to be what, what Putin is concerned about. And we might think ridiculous, but remember, you know, if you're actually of the belief that NATO is an essentially aggressive and anti-Russian alliance, and one of those two, frankly, is, is accurate, then, you know, it's perhaps understandable why you're particularly concerned, as he put it at one point, of, you know, there could be missiles based in Kharkiv that could hit Russia in whatever minute. So that, that will be one option. One would also link that to some kind of undertaking for verifiable limits to the forces that are actually close to the Ukrainian border, primarily Russian, but, you know, there also have to be some, some kind of Ukrainian limits, but it, that will be much, much less significant, frankly. But precisely just to prevent the Russians just simply you know, maintaining this kind of a massive task force, that could roll at, at any time. But as I said, that would have to be verifiable. So, I mean, in this respect, this would not be Finlandizing Ukraine. This would not be inf enforcing neutrality on it. It would just simply be providing the Russians with a guarantee that it could not then be used easily and quickly as some kind of forward base. And at the same time, this would have to be twinned with sustained and substantial further military assistance to Ukraine so that actually it can defend itself. Remember, this is a large country which has already demonstrated its willingness to, to fight to protect itself. It's about giving them the wherewithal, and that doesn't just simply mean some more shoulder-fired anti-tank missiles, which have their role, but to be honest, are as much as anything else token. Now, what above all Ukraine needs is an integrated air defence system that goes everything from shoulder-fired weapons with, with troops on the ground all the way up to maybe Patriots or similar long-range, high-capacity missiles, all connected with adequate communications, radar systems, and, and all the like. That, I think, is something that obviously would not be quick to bring in, to install, to train up, and to, and, and to activate. But nonetheless, that really would be a substantial improvement to Ukrainian security. And I would suggest that instead of trying to contest the Black Sea Fleet at sea, also, actually, Ukraine could do with a sort of uh, a substantial uh, array of modern land-based anti-shipping missiles. Again, there are some things that the Ukrainians can't really do. They can't really contest the Russians at sea or in the air, but they can actually try to deny those two domains to the Russians. So, OK, that, that would be my, my first kind of big, big proposal, which is exactly about not a demilitarization of Ukraine, but ensuring that Ukraine can defend itself but also cannot be used as an offensive jumping-off point. Now, in some ways, that was the easy bit compared to the issue of the Donbass, the reintegration of Donbass, and finding some kind of resolution that moves on from the currently, as far as I'm concerned, pretty much dead 
Minsk II Accords, which were meant to actually provide a framework, but precisely because there are such diametrically differing understandings of the order, the sequencing above all, between Ukraine and Moscow. They, they're going nowhere. And you know, a major issue for the Ukrainians is this sense that Integrating a Donbass which is thoroughly penetrated, even controlled by Russian agents of influence, would basically give Moscow a veto over Ukrainian policies. And that's an entirely understandable and justifiable concern. However, it very much hinges, therefore, on what are the terms of the constitutional deal that gives the, these kind of parts of the Donbass a special status, a certain degree of protection, which particularly means, you know, over things like language, you know, the, the status of Russian language, which after all has come under pressure in, in, in Ukraine as a whole. Things like that, without actually giving it an actual formal veto in any kind. Because let's be perfectly honest, democracies are able to incorporate representatives of communities who may well have very different perceptions and interests. That's part of what democracies do. I mean, you know, if we look at Britain, not only do we have the various parties in Northern Ireland that very much have their own agendas, and in some cases it's agendas that are looking south into the Republic of Ireland, and in some cases agendas that are very, very much uh, opposed to any kind of notion of reintegration on the island of Ireland. But arguably even more dramatic is, is the presence of Scottish Nationalist Party MPs which, after all, is representative of a party that is actually fundamentally opposed to the continuation of the Union as it is. And this certainly causes its own disruptions, its own problems for those who are trying to manage the government of the day. But for all that, democracies do this. Democracies do provide an extraordinarily effective way, precisely, to make different communities feel that they still have a voice, that they still have a say. So it's not as if there's anything necessarily disruptive, certainly not fatally disruptive, about the presence of what may be actually a kind of a Russia-looking collection of deputies in the Rada, the Parliament, or whatever. So it's very much it's about how this is done. And in that respect, look, yes, of course, that the odds are that the first round of elections will be very heavily influenced by Russian proxies and Russian covert actors. And there would have to be some kind of limits. You know, I can't see, you know, figures such as Pushilin, rebel leader. And we'll come back to rebel in a moment as a word. But, you know, being, being also allowed into the Rada, not safely anyway. But on the other hand, if one looks at, for example, the Northern Ireland peace process, which was admittedly a lengthy, painful business. You know, but nonetheless, it led to a situation in which actually... You have representatives of Sinn Féin, which is really regarded as the political wing of the IRA terrorist movement, but nonetheless brought into the political system. These things are possible. The thing is that exactly it's about what kind of a constitutional arrangement. And I hear, I mean, obviously the pressure has to be on, on Kiev to actually come up with something sort of meaningful that works for it, that it is willing to put forward and then is, is willing to present as the means for some kind of post-Minsk to, I don't know, Ankara 1 or wherever they, they, they hold sort of further talks. And yes, that may mean the embarrassment of having to talk directly to the, the, the rebel leaders. And on that point, are they rebels? Oh no, some would say that you know, they're, they're all Russian proxies. 
that this is the problem with this conflict. It's actually very, very confused. If you just simply say that these people are nothing but Russian proxies, you are oversimplifying it. They have their own agendas. They have their own interests, which sometimes actually are, are contrary to those uh, of Moscow's and at other times are entirely congruent. Yes, they depend very heavily on Russia for everything from weapons to the maintenance of such an economy as still persists. But that doesn't mean that in every instance they are entirely subordinated to Moscow. Empires don't work like that. We should know that in the UK. You know, how often do our imperial subjects actually have their own agendas and often even actually use and exploit the imperial metropolis to their own purposes? This is in part something that was a, a genuine rebellion by, by some people, a, a minority. In part, it was just simply an expression of dissatisfaction in the Donbass region with what was happening in Kyiv back in 2013-2014. And in part, absolutely, it is simply a Russian, okay, I hate the term, hybrid war, but you know, a, a, a Russian political operation to bring pressure to bear on Ukraine and try and force it back into its own sphere of influence. It doesn't fit neatly into any of the existing definitions. Okay, end, end of my little rant on, on, on that. But I suppose the number of times it's a, you use rebel as shorthand on, say, Twitter, and you get these sort of snarky little, oh, no, that's the wrong term. That's a term out of the Kremlin's playbook. You should call them mercenaries or terrorists. Well, no, actually, I shall call them what I want to call them. Anyway, so some kind of constitutional basis that you know, would allow the integration of these people without allowing them an absolute veto, certainly over foreign policy and the like. The thing is, though, that one has to look to the long term. In the short term, that would actually be very, very disruptive, obviously. But nonetheless, the point is that this then opens the way to, first of all, the reintroduction of the institutions of Ukrainian statehood into the Donbass. And that means the police. That means, I mean, even if there's a degree of uh, localization, but nonetheless, ultimately, it would have to come under the central interior ministry. That means, for example, counterintelligence activities of the SBU. So actually, this will begin an opportunity to precisely, slowly push back and ultimately push out Russian forms of illicit influence. I mean, they're going to to have legitimate forms of of influence. They can still support, you know, Russian language schools and TV channels and and whatever else. Fine, that's that's part of the the warp and weft of of, of modern life and modern ethnic transnational politics. But the, the kind of the really dangerous covert type of pressure and anything that involves military force that can begin to be pushed back. Because ultimately, Ukraine has to be optimistic about its prospects, or what is the point? Most of the people of the Donbass, as I said, were not rebels. That was a small minority, heavily supported and whipped up by, indeed, foreign agents, foreign actors. However, many were dissatisfied with their lot. They certainly, if not, they didn't want to become part of Russia. But on the other hand, they were sufficiently dissatisfied with what they felt that that Kiev had offered them, that they were at least not willing to resist these particular sort of um, covert and overt destabilizing and subversive forces. Well, that's actually something that really needs to be addressed. And I think, and again, this is what I'll come to in, in the second part, If one can think of a situation in which the people of the Donbass are actually in a position where, on the one hand, they feel their voice can be heard in Kyiv, 
And on the other hand, they actually can feel that their quality of life improves as a result of reintegration, which is on the one hand difficult and on the other hand not so hard. It's difficult in that actually you know, rebuilding, reintegrating this, these regions is going to be a problematic and a generational challenge. But on the other hand, most people there, their lives are currently sufficiently ghastly that actually it wouldn't take that much to make them feel that there is some kind of positive progress. But if they feel that, even if today they are considered to be faintly or potentially subversive, I cannot believe that in a few years, let alone a political generation's time, they would not be entirely reconciled to being part of Ukraine. See, this is it. This is the corollary. The people who express the greatest hope and optimism about Ukraine so often are the people who actually don't seem to feel that that can possibly be communicated to the people of the Donbass. This is, I think, a mistake. I think actually they need to realise that they have something very definite to offer the people of the Donbass. And yes, there's all kinds of nuts and bolts that would need to be addressed. I'm not, in try- I'm not at all trying to minimise the risk. Everything from amnesties, hugely unpopular but absolutely necessary for all but the, the very top echelons of the um, LNR and D- DNR. And also, obviously, for people who are committed, you know, who committed particularly egregious crimes. And in effect, allowing those of the leadership who want to to basically flee to Russia, which is not going to be a problem because they probably already have Russian passports by now. So it has to be a generous reintegration. It has to be one that actually accepts that bygones must be, on the whole, allowed to be bygones. And it's all about looking forward. And if a bunch of nasty opportunists become MPs, well, look, I don't think they're going to be proved to be the only nasty opportunists in the RADA. The question is actually having a proper constitutional structure that means that the whole system can still work. Now, look, I mean, again, I know that there's huge amounts of not just devil, but a whole horde of demons in the detail. And I'm not trying to minimise that. I'm trying to give a sense of how one can at least potentially be positive about what a peace deal that actually addresses the, the, the key requirements could do. And the thing is, you know, why why would Russia agree to this? Well, precisely, this is in part the terms for the kind of you know, wider settlement relating to foreign troops and the like. Russia has never been interested in the Donbass. Russia has never cared about the people of the Donbass. They have always been nothing but a lever against Kiev. Well, one can hope, and this is hope, that Putin and his closest cronies have accepted that they have lost Ukraine in the sense of it is never going to be a friendly, subordinate little brother, but they can actually at least ensure that it is not the basis for a hostile military alliance. But anyway, now let's move to some other issues, but only after the break. Just the usual reminder, you're listening to the In Moscow Shadows podcast. You can support it by going to patreon.com slash inmoscowshadows. And remember that patrons get a variety of additional perks, as well as knowing that they're supporting this peerless source on all things Russian. And you can also follow me on Twitter, at Mark Galliotti, or on Facebook, Mark Galliotti on Russia. Now, back to the show. So, welcome back, as I try to channel naivete and optimism in equal measures and think of what might some kind of plausible peace deal for settling the Ukraine-Russia crisis 
look like. Well, let, let's move on to the next of the apparently, and I think in many ways more intractable issues, Crimea. No one's going to like this one, I imagine. My answer is just live with it. Look, Crimea, first of all, is a part of, of, of territory that Russia does have some kind of a claim to. And no, I'm not saying that that makes it all right or legally supportable or whatever, but nonetheless, again, it's worth just sort of accepting that this is not just simply a, a, a naked and entirely unbased land grab. But more to the point, I cannot see a conceivable, certainly on this side of the horizon, Russian leader, not just Putin, but post-Putin, being willing and able to surrender Crimea. And also, I mean, it, obviously the, the vote on Crimea, and Crimea joining Russia was not a legal one. It was not a fair one. It was not carried out under the required standards, shall we say, that we would expect in the international order. But frankly, even if it had been, my view is actually a very clear majority would have voted for joining Russia. In these circumstances, I think we just have to swallow it, bitter though it would be to, to do so. Now, does that mean that, that Kiev has to formally say, absolutely fine, it's yours? No, I don't think so. I think there is a difference between maintaining a moral claim to that territory and actually feeling that you have to do something about it. I think really a, Ukraine has to signal that, you know, it... it, it Certainly, unless there's some dramatic change of the situation on the ground, such as, for example, the people of Crimea deciding that, in fact, they would rather be Ukrainian and a sort of a groundswell of support in that. Otherwise, I think basically Kiev has to accept that it will just stop doing anything about it. And the West, likewise. And I think in that case, really, we, we should be looking to what was done with the Baltic states after they were annexed by the Soviets at the end of World War Two is that in practice, the West grudgingly acknowledged that those were now part of the Soviet Union, but formally did not. And on all the maps, there was a little asterisk and a little sort of statement saying this is not recognised. But in practice, there it is. Now, this raises the interesting question of what would happen with sanctions. And I would suggest that the sanctions that were imposed over Crimea, which, let's be honest, have not clearly had a particularly significant uh, deterrent effect, can slowly be wound down as part of the peace deal in response to Russia fulfilling its various obligations. I think that's a way of pivoting what at the moment are frankly rather pointless, and certainly when it comes to the American ones, open-ended sanctions, which simply act as a further irritant to West-Russia relations, and that turning them into something positive, which is precisely an inducement for the Russians to, to play their own part. So that, that will be my answer to, to, to Crimea. That really, though, leads the way to what then would need to happen as part of this process after the terms of an actual deal. And the answer to that is a massive reconstruction of Ukraine. If war can be averted, this will not obviously be just maybe a massive benefit to both Ukraine and indeed to Russia, it will also be a massive benefit to the West. Think about it. If war happens, the West will have to deal with higher food prices, because after all, Ukraine is a serious agrarian player. Probably higher energy prices, because it's no question that uh, you know, there will be issues over gas and oil supplies. It will have to deal with likely tens, hundreds, maybe thousands, but maybe even millions of Ukrainian refugees heading into Europe. 
Beyond that, it will no doubt feel that it needs to arm, and as it should, arm the, the resistance. That will have its own costs, both political. I mean, what happens when, let's say, Russian agents try to blow up arms depots in Europe? As happened, after all, we should note, Vrbjetica in the Czech Republic in 2014. What does the West do then? I mean, there, you know, there are all kinds of huge risks there, as well as massive economic costs. Well, good for us. We save that money. All or some of that ought to therefore be spent on building up Ukraine, because Ukraine, following any such deal, needs to succeed. It needs to succeed, first of all, for its own terms. Secondly, so that it can continue to uplift the Donbass region and in the process reconcile the communities there to being part of a single unified Ukraine, with an eye, hopefully in due course, to, let's say, getting the people of the Donbass willingly, by referendum or similar, to surrender their own special status. I mean, again, you know, what, what is granted once can, in theory, be readdressed in the future. So all, for all of these reasons... It is very much in the West's interests, as well as Ukraine's, to see massive reconstruction. Of course, there is a challenge here. I mean, to be blunt, and again, this is not something that, that the particular kind of pro-Ukrainian community are going to be happy with, there's no way of getting around the fact that Ukraine has too often played on its own victim status as a way of explaining away its own failures to reform properly. You know, issues above all, such as corruption. Now, that cannot be allowed to continue. I'm not saying we necessarily need to have an exact model of, for example, the Marshall Plan at the end of World War II, in which not only do the United States provide huge, generous and far-sighted amounts of assistance to reconstructing the shattered countries and economies and societies of Europe, which, of course, meant reconstructing them as capitalist, liberal, America-looking democracies and markets. I mean, this is not entirely an act of altruism, but nonetheless, it was a very, very smart and pragmatic act of altruism, shall I say. But one of the reasons that it worked was precisely that instead of just simply handing over money to the locals and expecting some suitable reports in due course demonstrating just how useful it had been and how it had all been spent properly, instead you actually had Americans on the ground monitoring dispersing funds, and so forth. Now, again, terribly intrusive, the sort of infringement on sovereignty that countries would very rarely normally accept, unless you happen to be on your knees after being shattered by World War II. And that's not necessarily exactly how it would have to work in Ukraine. But some way of actually making sure that this really is money that gets spent where it needs to get spent, in the context of a reform programme, I mean, let's be honest, if only the rest of the Ukrainian government system had been reformed as effectively as the Ukrainian military had, this would be a very, very different situation. Well, Ukraine needs to come to terms with the fact that actually its security rests just as much on an honest and efficient civil service and judiciary, etc., as it does as the, on the quality of its fighting men and women. Anyway, so, so massive reconstruction would have to be part of this process, the, you know, the, the wider peace process. And then what about the rest of the stuff that is being discussed? Things like you know, reopening talks about intermediate-range nuclear forces in Europe, verification of sites, perhaps addressing the whole anti-ballistic missile issue, which again, frankly, I think was, was a mistake to really push forward with that. 
All of this is fine and great. Now, the reason at the moment it hasn't made any kind of impact on the actual situation on the ground is because it doesn't really address the, the core issues, which is precisely the degree to which Ukraine and Putin's wider suspicions about the European security architecture and NATO are kind of wrapped together. But in the context of a wider peace deal, these are all excellent things to throw in. Firstly, because on the whole, they address very real security concerns for both sides. Secondly, because they help sweeten the pot. If one thinks about it, this, this, this peace deal would it, you know, obviously require Russia to give up a certain amount of leverage position and standing in, you know, in return for, I think, I hope it would feel greater security. The more that Putin can preen thinking that he has, or presenting himself, as having been able to win concessions from an essentially hostile and grudging West, then the more likely he would be to accept it. Okay, so there, lightning speed. There, you see, I've resolved the entire Ukraine problem. No, of course not. I am not quite so naive as to believe that. It was rather, I think it's really important that at a time as we game war so assiduously and, you know, with, with obvious reasons, well, at the same time, we should game peace. We should try and get some sense as to what might some kind of more imaginative peace deal way. If we just simply make this something where we're just trying to tell the Russians, you must de-escalate or bad things will happen. Well, if faced with a choice between escalation or capitulation, Putin will, in my opinion, escalate. The thing is to actually find some way that we can turn this out of being a zero-sum game into one in which both sides gain something. And I think this is, this is one particular attempt at it. Would this work? I have no idea. Probably not. It may well be that things are now too far gone. It may well be that literally as I am uploading this podcast, the tanks will already be rolling across the border and the missiles and the aircraft arcing through Ukrainian airspace. I can hope not. Yeah, that is, of course, a possibility. But nonetheless, we must not close our eyes to options. I think that is the key thing. We too easily sort of retrench ourselves. We very, very quickly and assiduously think through all the kind of military tactical innovations. But we don't tend to think, I think, with the same degree of imagination and flexibility about political options. Would any of mine work? As I say, I don't know. But do we need to be thinking in those terms right up to the point where it becomes impossible to actually have any kind of peaceful resolution? We absolutely do. Anyway, that probably exhausts my stockpile of dewy-eyed optimism. So I think I'll have to end there and wish us all a peaceful week ahead. Well, that's the end of another episode of the In Moscow Shadow podcast. Just as a reminder, beyond this, you can follow my blog, also called In Moscow Shadows. Follow me on Twitter, at Mark Galliotti, or Facebook, Mark Galliotti on Russia. This podcast is made possible by generous and enlightened patrons, and you too can be one. Just go along to my Patreon page, that's patreon.com slash In Moscow Shadows, and decide which tier you want to join, getting access to exclusive materials and other perks. However, whether or not you contribute, thank you very much indeed for listening. Until next time, keep well. 
Товарищ прав.